0: Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 137. It's September 12th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, I want to answer the question that I've heard from uh, many of you ask that relates to this week's purchase or this week's announcement that Warren Buffett will be taking a large stake in Philip 66. Now, because he appears to be entering into the energy sector, many of you are asking if this might signal the bottom of oil pricing. We all know that Warren Buffett is the world's greatest investor. You know, if he's moving into the energy sector, does this mean that oil prices are going to be going up and that we should be looking at buying energy stocks at this time as well? Well, the short answer is, no, I don't think that's what all this means. And so stick around. And in this episode, I'll explain my rationale. Before we get started, just want to make a couple comments about yesterday's podcast. I had a social event that I needed to attend last night, and I had to get my podcast out quick. And Almost always what I do before I upload my podcast is I do try and listen through the whole thing to make sure that it's up to quality standards. Now, I know some of you wise guys out there are surprised that I have quality standards and audio standards, but uh, in any case... I do have quality standards, but last night I was in a hurry to go to an event with Mrs. Pugliano, and so I didn't get to do that. So at least three things occurred in that podcast that I didn't get a chance to correct. Number one was, I kind of mumbled a couple times when I said the date and stuttered, So it may not have always sounded like I was saying September 11th, but chalk that up to my Western Pennsylvania accent. I did say September 11th, but I would have tried to fix that had I had time. The other error that I noticed was when I was talking about the Chinese recently devaluating their currency, I talked about them reducing the value of their currency by 2%. And I, you know, quickly said, well, just, you know, pull some numbers out of the air. Assuming the Chinese economy is 10 trillion dollars, two percent of that is two billion dollars, and that's a big number. Well, actually, if you do the math, that's only 200 million dollars. I was an order of magnitude off. Uh, but that still, trust me, is a big number. To put that in perspective, 200 trillion dollars is somewhere around maybe you know three or four months of uh, what the European Union is is pumping into their market with quantitative easing. So I did that number quick in my head. And I would say to that, that just proves that you don't have to be perfect with math to still make money in the stock market. Also, as a side note on China devaluating their currency, if I were a betting man, I would bet that over the next 12 months, we are going to see China devaluate their currency at least one more time. Don't take that to the bank or anything. That's just some speculation on my part. But that's how I sum up that situation. And then the other thing that uh, I think was missing from the podcast is A point that I wanted to make about the Federal Reserve and their quantitative easing program, I I did mention how quantitative easing 3 was stopped October of 2014 and how you know the way that things are going right now with an election year coming up, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a QE4 program coming out. What I meant to also add in there, and I neglected to say it, was that we still, in effect, do have a quantitative easing program going on. And again, this is why I'm not worried about a measly 25 basis points, you know, increase or decrease in the Federal Reserve's borrowing rates. 25 basis points means 0.25%, which is 0.0025. That's the point I was making in yesterday's podcast about, you know, apply that in your life. Are you really going to miss that amount of money one way or the other? It's a bunch of hype that the media is just focused on because maybe they don't have anything else to talk about. Maybe it's a smokescreen and they're trying to avoid you from looking at, at reality. But just to put that in perspective, and I'll try and do a better job with my decimal points than I did yesterday. But if I do this in my head, let's just assume that you make $50,000 a year. That's about the average income for an American family. So 25 basis points out of your income, that would be .0025. If you adjusted your income by that amount, that would come out to $125. Now, I know you probably don't go out and just waste $125, but think of it one way or the other. If someone walked up to you today and gave you $125, or if a robber came up to you and took your wallet and, and out of your wallet they took $125, Is your life going to be drastically impacted one way or the other? You know, over the next 12 months, is that going to stop you from buying a home? Or is that going to stop you from buying a new truck? Or is that going to stop you from taking a vacation? I don't think so. That's what the point I was trying to make in yesterday's episode about the whole insignificance about what's going on with interest rates. But what is not insignificant is the quantitative easing program that the Fed has structured over these last six or seven years and that has spread to other countries. But what is significant is the quantitative easing program where the Federal Reserve was just printing money and buying up government debt and buying up government bonds, and that program had gone on about six or seven years. That's the problem. That is a direct way for the Federal Reserve to have an impact on the market's uh, method of setting interest rates. So that's a problem, not the fact that the Federal Reserve may or may not decide to change their overnight lending rate. That's the part that's insignificant. But here's something I forgot to add yesterday. So we're really still seeing a mini quantitative easing going on within our Federal Reserve. You see, because that $4.5 trillion that they have on their balance sheet, and $4.5 trillion is about as much as it would take to buy all 30 stocks on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So Walmart, 3M, Nike, AT&T, right? All those stocks, some of them that took over 100 years to build like General Electric or Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, you know, long-term 100-year-old established companies. Well, the Federal Reserve basically printed that amount of money since 2008, 2009, Prior to that, their balance sheet was pretty bloated. It was 800 billion. Well, now it's like 3.5 trillion. That's a lot of money. And that's what's kept us muddling along, coming out of a major economic crisis. And although we have stabilized, we've never hit the escape velocity of the, of the economy that everybody, all the politicians, all the economists keep promising. Our economy can barely grow at 2%, even though the banking system out of thin air created nearly $3 trillion and then pumped it into the, the debt market, the, the government treasury bills, treasury notes, and the mortgage market. And that wasn't done to pump up the stock market. Now, the Federal Reserve is happy that the stock market um, has recovered and has you know doubled since the days of the recession. All the politicians like taking credit for that. But that wasn't the intent. The intent was to shore up and protect the banks, to help them build up their balance sheets, and to help them take the bad debt and the bad uh, mortgage properties off their balance sheets or at least stabilizing them. And by the Federal Reserve coming into our markets with that three trillion dollars that basically bought up all the bad real estate all the distressed houses it made the real estate market increase so when you hear people say "Well, there wasn't any inflation oh yes there was inflation but the inflation was in the real estate market and that was the intent so that the banking system would be solvent now, collateral damage to that was also that it put a lot of money into the American stock market, the emerging stock markets, and that's what's pumped all those markets up. But if you look here in the last year or so, emerging markets have collapsed again. China is not growing at the rate it had been. And it's not only China's internal consumption. They were down something, uh, their exports to Europe were down something like 8% last quarter. So the whole global economy is slowing down. That has put major pressure on the emerging markets. And these emerging markets are really aren't emerging at all. Again, that's one of those terms, unlike a market correction that means something. An emerging market doesn't mean a market that's, you know, suddenly coming up out of nothing. What they're really saying when they talk about emerging markets are commodity exporting markets. So countries that either dig minerals out of the ground or pump oil out of the ground, or to a lesser degree, uh, grow crops like rice or something, and then export that. And the the primary market for those commodities has been China because of the double-digit growth going on in China and to a lesser degree, India. Well, all the funny money coming out of the Federal Reserve, a lot of that got funneled into these emerging markets. So they dug deeper mines to mine more copper and put in more oil wells to to uh, get more oil because everybody was worried about peak oil. And that's the same thing that we saw happening in the United States with the shale oil drillers. The one exception there was is that really hardly anybody thought the shale oil drillers were going to have success. They thought these were a bunch of crazy old wildcatters. Well, those guys proved the world wrong. But in any case, what we end up with now in 2015 is that China is growing at maybe 5% when, you know, a few years ago, four or five years ago, they were growing at 12 and 14%. And so all that copper, all that iron ore, all the lumber, all the cement, all the gasoline that people thought they were going to need, that all those construction projects and expansions were based on, well, now we don't need them anymore. So that's the problem and it isn't the type of crisis where it's um, you know existential where because this happened you know humanity's going to get wiped out okay it's not like an asteroid hitting the earth it in due time will work itself out and in fact it could turn out to be very profitable because commodity prices are so much cheaper than they had been 3 or 4 or 5 years ago if you go back and read my blog post over at Investable Wealth and go back to what I, I wrote, uh, I just started that in 2013. So if you go back and start reading those things, you'll see I was very pessimistic because I was worried about the market topping out way back then. But I started getting more optimistic when I saw the price of commodities and specifically the price of oil coming down because I kept saying to myself in 2013, how are these corporations going to squeeze their operations to make them more profitable they've already um you know held back their labor costs they've fired a bunch of people coming out of the recession they're not giving anybody raises they're already in about all the markets they're going to enter in now, so they're not going to be able to increase their top line sales. How will they shave things off their, you know, the bottom line to make it more profitable? Well, when I started seeing oil prices come down, that was an event to me that meant that these corporations could potentially start improving their profits. Now, not the corporations that were involved with uh, with energy it wasn't going to help them, but it would help the airlines, the transportation type companies. It would help people that bought plastics or bought chemicals, right, and used those in their processes. It would also prove to help the U.S. dollar. And during that same period of time, 2014, the the U.S. dollar started strengthening as it strengthened through most of this year again. So it was a good 18-month run where the dollar had come up significantly because we were getting ready to scale back and stop our quantitative easing program as Europe started ramping theirs up. That increase in the dollar, again, it would hurt some companies. It would hurt companies that exported from the United States, but that's only about 15% of our economy. It would also hurt some of the big multinationals, but you'll notice that I didn't buy stocks in those companies. I was looking more at the smaller companies. Again, I was focused on, you know, something like a trucking company. A U.S. trucking company is going to benefit from a stronger dollar because it's not impacted with overseas sales. It will also be able to transport more things in the United States from the coasts as um, our U.S. dollar stronger will import more products. More products will come in on, in boats. Trucking companies will pick those up from our coasts and ship them into the center part of our continent. And then also trucking companies would benefit from the reduction in fuel costs. Okay, so that's just one example where that was a good industry. It made sense. All the trends were coming together for it. Well, as we got into 2015, I started seeing all the markets you know, slowing down. I sold my positions I had in Europe and Ireland and Mexico and some different things I had. By that time, I'd also already gotten rid of all my transportation stocks. I was preparing for the slowdown because then we were starting to see the energy companies and their profits being impacted by the reduction in oil prices and commodity prices, which I thought maybe were going to bottom out back then, they kept going lower, they've continued to go lower. Those are all bad signs for a growing economy in the short term. Now let's bring this back to the Federal Reserve, and I'm sorry I've gone off on a tangent here, I've taken more time explaining this than I wanted to, but here's a key point, We still have a mini quantitative easing program going on in the United States because that $4.5 trillion that's on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, well, they haven't retired that debt. Every day, every month, every quarter that that debt comes due, they just roll it over and buy more debt with it. So it would be like you holding a three-month CD from a bank. And at the end of three months, instead of taking your cash out, you just roll it over into another CD. And so we're not sure on what those numbers are, but maybe 15 to $20 billion, maybe more, every month are being funneled back into the uh, U.S. debt and probably U.S. mortgage market from the Federal Reserve as they roll over their debt. So again, to put that in perspective, if the Fed is rolling over $20 billion a month into U.S. debt markets, that's about a third as large as what Europe's currently doing. And so that's why I call it a mini-quantitative easing program. They're still pumping significantly more money into America's debt market than would otherwise be occurring. That also is having an effect on keeping interest rates low. So it gets back to it doesn't matter what they do or say in terms of their Fed funds rate or their overnight lending rate because they're directly and very impactfully manipulating interest rates by quantitative easing and they're doing that through their own intervention by our own federal reserve as well as by letting other central banks around the world do it Japan European Central Banks and these others money is fungible when they print too many euros in Belgium it just doesn't all stay there that money goes around the globe and it greases the skids of the economy everywhere interest rates are where they're at because that's where the market thinks they should be based on the intervention of all this central bank funny money Okay, so enough of that. A lot of you are watching the news and you're getting mixed signals. You're seeing that. Warren Buffett has gone out and, and bought a major stake in Phillips 66, and you're saying, hey, is this the bottom of pricing for the energy sector? You know, does this mean that oil prices are going to turn around? Because Warren Buffett, he's obviously a genius, um, he must know something that we don't know, and he's buying into oil companies, so does that mean that we should start doing it, right? Has this correction stabilized enough that we should start getting back in? And then we're also hearing from uh, a lot of politicians and economists, and in particular from the Chinese government. Over the last week or so, they've sent out all their uh, officials at the G, the summit of G20 and different things, and and their uh, economists and people in the Chinese government are all talking about how they're going to have a soft landing, how they're not going to devaluate their currency anymore, how they don't want a currency war, how uh, China would uh, lose the most from something like that. You've seen that they've been selling off a bunch of U.S. government treasuries so they can stabilize and bring up the price of their, their yuan or their RMB. Well, China is one of those things that right now they're protesting so much about saying that we're not going to devaluate that, again, as I mentioned earlier, that makes me think that we're probably going to see another one or two devaluations over the next 12 months because they're making such a big deal about saying how they're not. I'm a contrarian. I don't believe things people say. I watch what they do. And so that's what concerns me about China, you know, again, for the last five months we've heard them say "Oh, our economy is going to be it's stable at seven percent it's not going to drop below seven percent you know seven percent seven percent that was the official number we know that's not the case and even if it does turn out to be seven percent officially you gotta remember they devaluated their whole economy by two percent so that would put them at five percent even if the official number comes out at seven percent so take a contrarian view look at things from a cynical standpoint as far as the Warren Buffett thing, I have no way of knowing if oil is bottomed out or not. I sold my oil short a couple weeks ago. You can read that over at the blog at investablewealth.com where I, I posted it at the time and I showed the chart. I didn't sell it because I thought oil had bottomed out. In fact, I still think we're going to see oil get down into the 30s. Earlier this week, Goldman Sachs came out and said we could see $20 oil. Now, they were talking about a panic market, a real collapse. When I talked about, you know, if we do see these defaults on bonds and commodity exporters and we get into a really uh, big liquidity crisis, well, that will slow down the economy. And so that's why commodities could, you know, drop further than they are right now. And that's what Goldman Sachs is talking about. So they weren't saying that it's a high probability that oil could hit $20. What they were saying was is that it was probable okay that it's in the the realm of possibilities and I agree with that that's why I'm not jumping into commodities right now Uh, but as far as my oil short if you read my blog where I mentioned when I sold that position I got out of that position simply because oil broke up above its 10-day moving average and for like 44 trading sessions or whatever it was that I've annotated over there you can see that oil kept dropping and, and every time it would move up to its 10 day moving average that would act as resistance and the oil price would drop down further and make a, a deeper low. And so I held my position as long as it was below the 10 day moving average. Now the ten, there's nothing magical about the 10 day moving average. It's just the average of the, the chart, the pattern that I was able to best fit to, to oil over these last, you know, four months. It could have been a five day. It could have been a, a 52 day. But the 10 day is what looked like it fit most to me. And so my strategy was if it breaks hard above that 10 day moving average, I'm going to sell. And I did sell. I took my profits and I think oil is too volatile right now. I still think there's a higher probability that it will drop down now from, you know, $44 or whatever it is and go to back down somewhere in the 30s, maybe the mid 30s, could even get down to 32. But there just isn't enough of a profit margin to make up for the likelihood that it could spike up because as I've talked about in previous podcasts, you can go back and listen to those. Oil is one of those things that you never want to stake your life on because any problems in the Middle East, any shooting war, any disruption in a pipeline or an oil spill or anything like that, it shoots up and escalates, spikes up the price of oil overnight. So you don't want to get caught into something like that. But I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. Incidentally, neither does Warren Buffett. And here's a point I want to make. Just because Warren Buffett is going out right now and taking a big position in Phillips 66, and a lot of you think that that maybe means it's time to jump into the commodities market, I'm going to tell you a couple reasons why I don't think it is. So what you need to know about Warren Buffett's acquisition of Phillips 66 that I don't hear being talked about in the media Number one, Warren Buffett has been trading in the oil industry and it hasn't worked out well for him. He was a major major shareholder in ConocoPhillips, which he held for a relatively short period of time when you consider that he's the one that everybody always points to for buy and hold, and supposedly his quote is that his favorite holding period is forever. Well, in these last five years or so uh, he bought conoco phillips major investment there and then to a lesser degree he had, he had a fairly uh you know what we would consider a substantial investment in exxon Mobil. he sold both of those positions mobile i think he held less than two years the ConocoPhillips, phillips he may have held for two to four years i don't you know he doesn't buy everything all at once he he he, in some cases, um, I think ConocoPhillips, he started accumulating it over a couple years, but then he he sold it three years after his final acquisition purchase. So it depends on how you look at his holding period. But he definitely bought ConocoPhillips when oil companies were at about at their peak. So I don't know what he lost on ExxonMobil, but I've seen estimates that he's lost at least one to one and a half billion, something like that, on the ConocoPhillips deal. So just because Warren Buffett is the world's greatest investor, it doesn't mean that he doesn't make bad investment deals. And he doesn't have a great track record in these last few years in, in buying the right time into oil companies. The other thing you need to know about this Phillips 66 deal is, is that it's actually a spinoff of the Phillips stock that Warren Buffett lost so much money on. Phillips was a big integrated energy company, so they not only explored and drilled for the oil, but then they refined it and turned it into gasoline and other type of distillates. Well, the, the uh, refinery process, that all went through the Phillips 66 end of it. They have since sold that off. And so with the Phillips 66 acquisition, Warren Buffett isn't actually buying an energy company or an oil producing company. He's buying an oil refinery. There's a big difference there. So what Warren Buffett is buying into is not a commodity producer. He's buying into somebody that adds value to commodities. Phillips 66 buys commodities and then adds value into them by distilling them or cracking them, doing whatever different types of processes they do to turn them into chemicals and lubricants and gasoline, diesel. They may make plastics as well. I'm not sure if they're in the plastics business. So the way to look at this is that Warren Buffett is not assuming that commodity prices are necessarily headed up. Because if that's the case, I believe he would be buying directly into the commodity manufacturers. Where he's not, he's buying into the value-add people. He's buying into the companies that are downstream of the energy producers. So I would make the bet that Warren Buffett actually thinks that commodity prices are not going up. Because otherwise, rising commodity prices are going to have a negative impact on the profitability of refiners. If you look at refiners uh, prior to the last few months, they had been doing extremely well because oil prices came down, which meant that they had lower feedstock costs. But gasoline prices stayed up and then our American oil refining companies are allowed to export their refined products where American oil companies are not allowed to export their raw oil. So with the strength of the U.S. dollar and the ability to export, companies that make gasoline and diesel were making extremely high profits. So from my perspective, I wouldn't make the argument that it's time to jump into commodities now that Warren Buffett's buying Phillips 66 because I think his purchase indicates that he probably thinks that commodities are going to be stable to down rather than up. Now, again, as I just pointed out, he lost a lot of money in the energy industry, perhaps some on ExxonMobil. He definitely lost a lot of money on ConocoPhillips. So he may not know any more than we do. The point I'm trying to make here is just because Warren Buffett makes a big acquisition, that doesn't mean that you should do it. And then a thought I'll close out this podcast on. And that's that although Warren Buffett doesn't have a crystal ball and he can't predict the future, He is very much connected in the crony capitalism of American politics. Think back a couple years ago when he was promoting the man-made effects of global warming, and that, in my opinion, he was not only lobbying and trying to, to impact the policy and the legislators, but he made a lot of public comments to the American people, about how he opposed the Keystone Pipeline. You know, he didn't want it coming through Nebraska, which is a state he lives in. It it might contaminate the environment. It might contaminate the aquifer. It would encourage the use of uh, fossil fuels, and then that would have an impact on global warming and, you know, on and on, yada, yada. And then at the same time, he's making a sweetheart deal, and he buys the railroad that hauls all the oil and benefits from the fact that there isn't a pipeline. Warren Buffett doesn't have a crystal ball to predict the economic conditions, but he definitely pulls the strings on the puppet politicians. And so more than anything, what my cynical mind leads me to when I see Warren Buffett purchasing Philip 66, which has its mainstay business in the transportation of oil and in the refining and the export of those oils, where my mind goes with all this, is that right now many people are expecting the Congress to lift the ban on U.S. oil exports. And if they did that, that would definitely have an impact on the price of oil going up because U.S. oil, since it can't be exported, it trades at a discount to Brent crude, which would be like the European equivalent. So our oil was forced to stay in the United States because of a arbitrary ban by the Congress that was put into effect in the 70s uh, back during the original um, Arab embargo of oil. So a lot of people now that we are producing all this oil, they're thinking that that export ban is going to be lifted, and again, that would help the price of oil. So do you see where my cynical mind's going with that? If that's the case, why would Warren Buffett make a major acquisition in an oil refiner that benefits from that ban on exporting U.S. oil? Think back to what happened with the legislation on the Keystone Pipeline. It got blocked, and Warren Buffett bought the railroads. You can see where my cynical mind's going with this. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Well, there you have it. That'll wrap it up for today. That's my thoughts on the market. As always, until the next episode, this is John Pugliano, wishing you the very best of returns.